Hi everyone, welcome back to Cup of Tea with Rick G. And today we are joined by Safe Dursey. And Safe is an ex-pharmacist and studied for about five years, decided he didn't want to go into that element and chose property instead. So Safe invests in the East Midlands, currently has around 10 HMOs about three flats and a couple of commercial conversions, and all of which has taken really only a couple of years to put together. So Safe, good morning and welcome to the show. Morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. So I've just given a little bit of a bio there about yourself and your history. So can you tell us a little bit more about your background? Uh, you studied for a while and why did you decide to take a different path? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, obviously did pharmacy, um, had a good pharmacy job afterwards, but I just decided that it was a bit too repetitive. Um, I didn't have any time as well. So a lot of it was, you know, trying to request annual leave. It just wasn't easy. Um, and I just felt trapped really. Um, so I just decided there, there needs to be another way out. And, um, you know, I sort of got into um, a non-property business from there and um, made a bit of money from that and then decided that hopefully, you know, to sustain that money and make sure that it sort of compounds and, and stays for the future. Um, to start investing the money wisely. Um, I just started off with, uh, with a simple buy to let in Manchester. And uh, this was back in 2015. And uh, it just went from there, really. And have you taken any education, Safe? Have you done this all yourself? Uh, to be honest with you, uh, so my dad was a former landlord in London for sort of the last 40 years. Um, I learned a lot from him. Um, so I didn't start with education. However, um, as I progressed, I mean, the Facebook groups, your Facebook group is great. And there's a lot of good Facebook groups out there. Um, I've been reading a lot of books. I've read House Arrest as well. Um, and podcasts, listening to podcasts, you know, similar to this, just basically learning from other people. Um, but along the journey, um, as we've gone into more specialist areas, yes, I have started to look at doing various courses, you know, whether it's in planning gain or whether it's sort of build to rent. So yeah, we, we have done that. So I think education is a vital uh, part of it. It just depends on which part of your journey you're at. Yeah, sure. And it's always good. You know, what I see is that you're paying someone um, to learn by their mistakes. So they're teaching you what not to do as much as they're teaching you what to do. So if your couple of thousand pounds accelerates your journey by five years, then hey, surely that's a great investment, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you don't know what you don't know. Um, so a lot of people, especially if it's being introduced to them, you know, it just seems like it's very, very invaluable information, which it, it always is. So yeah, I just think um, for people, especially at the start of their journey, um, education is really, really key and vital, and especially getting the experience from others um, is, is uh, important as well. It's interesting, Safe, because I did a, a podcast on the show last week with a guy called Nick, Nick Warburton. And Nick and I spoke a lot about anxiety and a lot about the grass is greener syndrome. And I think that almost everybody, I can guarantee that 99.9% .9 of the people that I talk to or the people that I interview have got this, I want to get out of my job and I want to do something else. Now, has that been the case with you, with the pharmacy? Do you think, um, you know, is the grass is always green, a syndrome, or is it literally a case of, you no, know, it just was never going to work for you? I think I never went into pharmacy just thinking I was going to be a pharmacist forever. Um, I think I went into it saying, you know what, this is a good background uh, degree to have, but, you know, it's just, a, it is there to give me a bit of comfort in the background in case I need it. Um, so I've always went into it, you know, really thinking that, there is another way, there is an entrepreneurial journey that you can go on. Um, but I think it's, it's one of these things where you need to have a plan, you need to have some kind of motivation or some kind of, you know, some kind of why in terms of why you want to do this. And if you have a strong enough why, um, then it will get you out because you'll put a plan together and, and you'll just get on your journey. 
And what was your why at that point, Seth? Because I know in my experience, your why kind of tends to change throughout your journey. I think when I first started out, it was freedom of choice. Freedom of choice was just so important. So it's not financial freedom. I didn't want to just go and sit on a beach and retire somewhere. It was just more freedom to choose when I want to work, where I want to work from. And to be honest with you, I'm probably working more now than I want to, when I was working in the pharmacy. But it's just having that freedom of choosing what I want to do, when I want to do. That was my why when I first started. I think, again, like you said, your why changes, you, you mature and, and things will change. I think now my why is probably more around the sustainability. So I want to sustain a lifestyle that, you know, when, I, when you do end up having kids, etc., that you can sustain that money for them. You don't have to always think about, you know, how you're going to make that money on a daily basis or on a monthly basis. Yeah, absolutely. And property isn't passive. You're right in saying that. And I, I really do bang the drum on being open and transparent with, with everything we talk about. And certainly in my social media groups, and I really try and tell people exactly how it is. And property is not passive, and you're correct in saying that, but it can give you a very good lifestyle if you leverage properly and if you bring people in and outsource. So that brings me on really well into why property now. I know you said your dad was a landlord, um, so probably a lot of it came from that. But did you look at other things as well? Or was it just, no, I'm going to do property. I know exactly what I want. Um, I did look at other things, but I think the thing is, it's just with property specifically, um, it's just a known type of asset. You know, it's very familiar to us, um, especially in the UK. I think people live by it, you know, that generations and generations have made wealth from property. So it was just more of a, you know, just basically more of the same. You know, why, cha- why try and change the model if it's working for, for other people? Um, I think things have obviously changed with property very uh, sort of within the last 10 years um, compared to what, our, you know, the, the, the sort of other generations we're living through. Um, so I think things have changed in terms of, you know, we're trying to do more creative strategies within property, but fundamentally as an asset class, you know, it does go up in value um, and it does give you cash flow. And, and those are the two most important things in property. And the naysayers safe. There's a lot of naysayers in everything we do, not just property. What would you say to them? And you just made a, a, you know, a bold statement that property is an asset class that's only ever going to go up in value. Well, we don't know that. Um, over time, potentially, we can go back and look in history. And yes, it has done. That's not to say it's going to continue to go up in the future, is it? It's not. However, um, you've got to look at the fundamentals of inflation uh, and everything going up in, in price as well. I mean, I'll be honest with you, back in 2015, I was contemplating, you know, everyone was saying, oh, there's going to be a market crash, it can't go up forever. And I was contemplating saying, do you know what, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait for the market to crash and then buy, I'm going to, wait for the market to crash and then buy. And it never happened. Mm-hmm. And the best thing I did, get started. I got started in 2015. That flat that I bought that time, I bought it at £94,000. I just refinanced it at 130. I did nothing to it whatsoever. It's been giving me around about £750 a month. No headaches, it's just a, you know, it's a single let. Then no. How, how hard can it be? I think that's really good advice. And I was kind of being a bit of a devil's advocate there because I always say, look, there's no, there's no right time to do anything apart from now. Now is the right time because if people start to procrastinate, like you said, you almost didn't do it. I've spoken to hundreds of investors over the last two years that say they're going to wait until after Brexit. Now, goodness me, how many opportunities have people missed because Brexit hasn't happened yet? You know, but no, nobody knows what the hell's going on in the government right now. How many opportunities are being missed because of that? So yeah, very much so. And I think people need to say, look, I'm going to take action. I want to do it. So let's just crack on. Let's do it. And by the way, I do think property is going to go up in value. Um, you know, but it's always something that we, we never have control over. So you've got 
a very diverse portfolio. So you've got about 10 HMOs, you've got some flats, single lets, you've got a couple of commercial conversions. So when you started your journey safe, what was your first strategy? What did you start making money on to begin with? Yeah, I think I, I didn't really think about it when I first got started. All I did was um, I just went to, to look for something of value. And it was very simple as just looking on the market, looking at you know what I can get um, sort of cheaper than the rest of the market um, in terms of what was available. Um, and that's what I did. I think flats were selling for around about 105, 110 grand mark at that time. And I just found something that was uh, slightly under that, good rental yield. You know, it, it wasn't rocket science. Um, I think as we've as I've gone on, um, things have changed. So my second property was a HMO. Um, I started to then really see the power of obviously sweating the asset and making sure that, you know, you really are maximizing the return you're getting. Um, and from HMOs, it just sort of really took off from there. And I built um, a portfolio of HMOs just because I think when you get into HMOs, you, you understand all the regulation, planning, et cetera. And it just doesn't, you know, it, it makes sense just to scale up. There's no point of just doing one or two HMOs. You might as well scale that up because you've already got all that, that knowledge and experience. Um, then we started to focus more on sort of the, the commercial conversions because we are very keen in the long term to hold blocks of flats as well. Um, so we've diversified along the way, um, but I think our main strategy was HMOs. And the 10 HMOs you've got now, do you own those or do you manage them? No, no we are, I own them. Um, two of them are co-owned um, and then the rest of the eight, uh, uh, I own them. Okay. And did you know what HMOs were fundamentally before you went into that strategy? Um, I knew the basics around it, um, but I just, yeah, I didn't know all the regulations if I'm being honest with you. Um, I did luckily buy a four bed, which was an unlicensed four property at the time. So that obviously made things easier. Um, but then I started to get into more of the licensing can, you know, licensing territories and then more of the planning territories as well. And but how did you I teach yourself that safe? You said you, you, you self-learned, but how did you, how did you find all that information? Um, a lot of it, a lot of it I found online through the forums. I mean, there's a lot of uh, support as well through the forums, you know, specifically when you're looking at uh, certain things in terms of uh, planning or licensing, you know, there's a lot of people with, with good knowledge on there. Um, but also reading books, as I said, and, and listening to podcasts as well. Okay, awesome. So you built your knowledge base really um, quite cheaply. Yeah, I, I would say. I mean, um, I, I genuinely do think if I was going to go back, um, I'd probably rather go for a specialist course because it would have just made my journey probably quicker, mm. um, if I'm being honest with you. Um, but I think it's just one of these where, you know, it's great to look at it in hindsight, but I think I am where I'm at now. And it's just, if there's anything else I want to do in the future, I will probably go and do um, something around that in terms of getting the knowledge for it. So you've got, how many tenants would you say at the moment? Uh, probably around about uh, around 52 tenants in total, approximately. 52 tenants. So, and they're made up from um, single lets and HMOs. Do you have any staff or do you self-manage? Uh, no, I outsource the management at the minute. Um, it was just something that I didn't really want to get involved in. Um, I didn't really enjoy either as well. Um, I enjoyed more of, you know, analysing, finding the deal, getting the finance and the investment, and then obviously... Um, going through the whole process as well with solicitors, accountants, etc. But what I didn't enjoy was the management part. So I've outsourced the management part. So when you say you've outsourced it with an agent? Yes, yeah. And how are you finding that safe? Because we get a lot of different stories about agents, some good, some bad. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting on the fence with this because we've got some great agents out there, but equally some agents don't really get HMOs. Yes. I think you've got a lot of the big, um, let's say, national uh, companies out there that, try to get into it but they just can't because they don't understand it um, and it's a very specialist area 
However, I think you've got small niche type of uh, specialist HMO agents that are doing really, really well. They just understand it. They get it. Some of them are even being tenants themselves or being students themselves. So they've really understood the market from the customer's point of view um, and the, from the landlord's point of view, and they've tried to deliver a service. So I really do think um, if you find a really good agent, you know, it's, it's really worth probably investing in an area where there is a really good agent just so they can obviously take all the, uh, you know, take all the work off your hands really and, and make it as passive as possible. It's not going to always be passive, but as passive as possible for you. Yeah, it's certainly going to be more passive, isn't it, if you're going to be outsourcing to an agent. What are you finding the markets like out there right now? We're seeing a lot of things on social media saying that the market's a bit flat. Um, you know, sometimes people are coming in and going into these boutique-type HMOs, really posh, high-end. Is that affecting you? I think we, we do ours to quite a good spec, to be honest with you. Um, I think you really got to know the market, though, as well, because there's a lot of people that are doing these really, really high-spec HMOs and, and probably doing it way over what they need to do. Um, but the market rents aren't going to be any, any much higher for them than they are for the rest of the market. And I think they're being caught out because their numbers aren't stacking as well and their yields are, are much lower. And also they're sort of waiting for this um, superstar tenant that's going to pay them, you know, I don't know, um, 20, 30% above what the rest of the market is. And sometimes they just don't come. So I think people in that space, they might say that it's saturated. Whereas I think if you hit the mass market, um, you have a good product, you hit the mass market, I think you'll be absolutely fine. And as long as you keep maintenance, um, you know, continuously being, being done on your properties, then I can't see any problems with, with the market at the minute. I think, you know, uh, I think we've only got one room at the minute that's empty um, out of those. So, yeah, I think from our point of view, the market's doing quite well. And in terms of your communication with your agent, are they pretty good? Do they let you know what's going on all the time or do you just have a monthly catch up? Um, I, I use probably around about two or three different agents because I invest into different areas within these systems. Uh, and I would say that some are better than the others. Um, you know, there's some of them that literally I don't hear about, you know, I don't hear from probably for three or four months. Um, but then there's others where I have to continuously keep on top of them all the time. Um, and I think it does vary. Um, but yeah, it's just one of these ones where it depends how good of a job they're doing. Um, that depends on how much communication you're going to have with them. And what sort of fees are you paying, Safe? Is it pretty much standard with all the agents you're using, or does it vary? Um, it's between 10 to 12%, and you've got the VAT on top of that. Okay, so that sounds pretty reasonable. And I always say to people that if you're using agents, you know, don't always try and barter them down, because they're going to go and fill the rooms with the highest payer. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with that. I always think in general, with any type of uh, trade or any type of companies, um, you know, if they're delivering a service for you, then you need to make sure that you pay them well so then they give you a good service as well. I mean, if you're going to always negotiate the price down on everything, you're not going to get the same level of service or the same level of incentive than to deliver on it. So, yeah, even with our builders, we, we tend to try and not argue with them on the pricing just so they can deliver that service day in, day out. And we always tend to pay them on time as well. Yeah, it is a false economy, isn't it? Because by the time you're doing it, certainly with agents, you might have an empty room because they're going to go and fill the highest payer and that's going to cost you more than it would have done if you've given them more of a percentage in the first place. So it is a bit of a false economy. So how hard was it to you to get your, your first deal? So you, you left the pharmacy industry and I know that you've kind of been in property only really seriously for the last two years. When did yeah. it all start to happen for you? How, how quickly was it after giving up your pharmacy job? I'd probably say within a year of giving up the pharmacy job, things started to really take off and, and we started to scale up as well. And it was when we went into, um, you know, the, the larger sort of five, six bed, seven bed HMOs that things really started to take off. Because I think, and this is just our personal opinion, um, 
the four beds do well and they make a bit of profit, but you, you know, your, your big profits really are the five, six and seven bedders um, and anything above that as well. Uh, so I think when we started to do that and start to do the full conversions, you know, buying them run down, do the full conversions on them and refinance the money. And then I start, to, you know, we start to see a lot of the, um, a lot of the income coming in from, from those ones. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, it, it's, it's horses for courses again, and people that use the term minimos when you've got either three or four people in a property. Now, if they're not very highly leveraged, or even if they're mortgage free, then potentially, yes, it could work. But for me, the same with you, safe. If you've got above five, so five, six, seven, eight, or more, then that's where the profit lies. And we've got some really big HMOs. We've got like 18 bedders, we've got some 12 bedders as well. And those are the properties that are really going to be our bread and butter moving forwards. So, how did you source your deals? A lot of people, you know, again, talk about, well, it's really hard. And I did a live this morning saying about steel sourcing and what have you. Um, how did you do it? What was your best strategy? Yeah, I think when, when you're starting out with deal sourcing, um, <laughs> You know, you're not going to get the best deal straight away, and that's fine. You'll learn from it. Um, when we first started out, um, I went through Rightmove, uh, through agents, and, and just went through the traditional routes. Um, as we started going along the journey, uh, we started to realize that we need to improve that process. Um, and I started uh, mainly sourcing through auctions. Now, auctions, again, um, it's a bit of a hit and miss. So, you know, some people say it's overpriced. Some people say you get good deals. I think from our point of view, we look for something where it puts people off. We understand that area and we have knowledge or experience in it and we buy the properties and, and then we, we solve whatever problem it has basically but it allows us to buy it under the market value and to add value to it and as we went along we just you know we did a lot of auction purchases i think we've done nine auction purchases within the sort of the last year or two um but now we're just sort of dealing with uh, we're trying to deal with asset managers directly if we can uh, but we're also dealing with auction house managers so they're sort of throwing things to us just before it hits the market as well um, so, yeah, I think the relationships have developed over time. Um, and I think it's not easy. The only, you know, you're not going to develop these relationships just by talking to them. The only way you're going to develop these relationships is by buying stuff from them. And when they see you're buying stuff from them, they'll know that you're serious, you know? Yeah. So you've got 10 HMOs now. You've done that in the last couple of years. So preferably, I know you've got a different strategy. You've got singlets as well. What would your preferred strategy be? Singlets versus HMOs? Um, no, I think HMOs, just because of the amount of um, income you can get from them, you know, compared to single lets and um, the, the yields on them as well are, are really good, especially the return on investment. Uh, so yeah, HMOs, I'd say. And what's your tenant demographic, safe? I, I wouldn't say professional, I'd say working class. Um, mm. A lot of uh, the portfolio is made up of working class and then the rest is students as well. Um, people working in um, telecommunications companies, insurance companies, um, warehousing, etc. Okay, that's cool. That's pretty much what we do as well with ours. We don't do students, but we do the, I mean, we used to call them blue collar workers. And I think it's a bit, I don't know, I don't like the terminology. So we just say people have got a job, basically. So anyone that's got a job, they can get a room with us. Now, there's a lot of talk about ensuite rooms. Now, this has been topical probably for the last five years. Um, it's never really gone away. What's your experience with ensuite rooms? Do you think there's a future for them? And what do you make of all of the single banding for the council tax? You know what? I, th I think it's really good to have a mix, non-ensuite and ensuite. I mean, when you look at it, so just looking at our areas that we operate in, a non-ensuite room would dictate probably around about 75, 80 to 85 pounds a week, let's just say. Uh, a non-ensuite room would probably be around about the 95 to 105 pound a week. Um, now, not everyone has enough money to afford the 95 to 105 pound a week. Yes, they want the luxury of having the ensuite, but they can't necessarily afford it. 
I think there's always going to be your mass market between the 75 to 85 pounds a week um, non-en-suite um, demand. But then, you know, you do get people that are really, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's a, sometimes, you know, the, the girls in, in the HMOs, they just don't want to share a bathroom, which is fair enough, and they will pay that extra. Uh, but a lot of people living on our HMOs, they want to save as much money as possible. Um, so we have found that, you know, non-en-suites and en-suites do as well as each other. And we haven't found, you know, more demand for one than, than the other, to be honest with you. But I think where the mass market lies at the minute in our areas is probably the non-en-suite um, just because of the pricing difference. Right. OK. What about the council tax issue, Safe? Are you experiencing any single banding at the moment? No, no single banding at the minute. Um, I think some people have experienced it, but that's probably because they've been on the VOA's radar for one reason or another. Um, I think as long as you keep your head down and, you know, that there's no specific reason that the VOA are going to start looking into things, I think you'll be fine. But I think it's just when something pops up on the VOA's radar and they start looking into it, that's when, um, that's when they'll start sort of single banding things. I think, you know, there's no consistency. It's really hard as an investor moving forwards for people and certainly people that are doing refurbishments, not knowing whether or not the VOA are going to start charging single banding. Whilst I understand what you're saying, but there are places like Reading, for example, who are just charging single banding for single AST contracts, regardless of whether there's an ensuite bedroom or whether there's um, um, cooking facilities in the room. And so there, there are no there are no common ground with it different voas in different areas are doing different things it's making it very hard for people to future proof and then you know you, you've also got the issue of when um if you go onto the website onto the voa's website it does tell you what they are looking for and what their guidelines are but the 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 parting comment that they use are each case will be down to each individual assessor so how do you plan forwards with that? How do people, you know, work out whether or not they're going to put on suites? I mean, this isn't really a question. It's just more of an observation. And I think it's very difficult. And I think it's something perhaps that we do have to bear in mind for the future, because I do see a lot of this coming in now. And the other element is, I think when um, the licensing changed in October and more people were having to go for um, mandatory licensing because they took away the floor aspect, then the inspectors were going out and then they were reporting to the VOA if they felt that the room was of um, single occupation as a single dwelling. So a lot of it's come from the back of that as well. So let's just see where we go with that. I don't know. I mean, that's more of an observation, really. So Safe, talk us about your last deal. What are you working on or what was your last deal? What does it look like? Uh, so we're currently working on a commercial conversion. Um, so it's basically going to be uh, B1A offices. Uh, it's around about 200 meters squared, converting into four one-bed flats. Uh, those are going to be social housing. So we've got a contract um, with a housing charity, basically. Um, we've got a pre-lease agreement with them, basically, before we started the build. Um, and we have the lease that's going to start as soon as we finish the build as well. So it's um, we've done it under permitted development. Um, if you want to know, do you, you want to know a bit about the figures or? Yeah, talk us through. So it's prior approval, I'm guessing, yeah? Yeah, prior approval. So we bought an auction, uh, bought at 85,000. Uh, I think with the fees and everything else, probably stood us at around about 88. Um, costing us quite a bit of money to renovate just because of, um, you know, the, the, uh, the building regs specifically. So we're having to do thermal insulation on all the outside walls. Um, and then also, obviously, you've got all the acoustics and, and, and fire as well within you know, between each flat as well. So the renovation is costing us around about 91 and a half, um, including that. Um, but we're looking to get valuation on it of around about 250 at the back end. Um, and we've got a lease uh, in place for three years at 20,400 for the whole block.
So your valuation, how did you get to that figure? Is it something you've come up with yourself? Yeah, so just looking at the prices within the area uh, on sort of right move sold prices, net house prices, etc. And um, it's around about £60,000 per flat uh, for a one bed flat. So um, yeah, we just did 60 times four, um, come up with with approximate figure. But obviously, because ours is, is much, uh, it's a bit of a higher spec than the rest. And we just sort of added a, a bit of a, a 10 grand premium. Mm, okay. And why did you go for social housing? What, what was the motivation behind that? Uh, well, you've got, you got no voids, you've got no management, you know, again, um, it is as headache-free as possible. Obviously, you have the issues around financing them because they're, they're not easy, especially if a lender needs to repossess and you've got lease in place and you've got I don't know, some kind of either vulnerable tenants or something like that. It, it isn't easy. Um, however, I think it's, um, it's one of these ones where, you know, it's good to have them in the portfolio because they are quite, I look at them as recession-proof, really, because you know, these kinds of people are always going to need housing, whatever happens. And where are you going with your portfolio, Safe? How far are you going to go into this? You're going to just keep going, or have you got a target that you you're looking to work towards, and then you're going to stop? Um, we we've actually started trading as well recently. So within the last sort of I'd say uh, nine to twelve months, we started trading property, um, just because we wanted to generate some liquidity as well. Um, you know, we didn't want to just sort of keep just buying, 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 and refinancing. We we didn't want to rack up all of this debt. So. Um, although obviously all the income will be paying off the debt and we'll have the uh, profit on the back end, we just thought that you know it'll be um, it'll be quite good to generate liquidity. Um, so we started trading as well. So I don't think we have a set amount in terms of what we were looking to to build up. I think it's more just about looking at it from a company's point of view and looking up from you know what's our targets in terms of uh, turnover, uh, net profit, etc. Um, and we're really looking to try and achieve you know around about a quarter of a million um, sort of within the next two years as a um, as a net profit. Okay, that's very achievable. I'd love it if you could post the numbers for that commercial conversion project. Once you've finished, I wouldn't expect you to do it beforehand, into our Facebook group, because it sounds really interesting. Something that lots of people are looking into at the moment. I think a lot of people are a little bit put off with um, you know, the, the, the stacking of the deal, making sure they get the right exit and locking cash into the properties. Is that something you could do for us? Yeah, of course I can. Okay, awesome. So... Before we move on, I want to um, ask you, I put a post out in my group last week and it was really uh, a really interactive post. I wanted to ask you the same thing. So who would you say, say, if, you know, you're very successful now and you know, you've got a degree, you were studying pharmacy, so you're an intelligent guy, you've moved forward, you've forged your own business, your business is doing really well. And lots of people have a mentor in their life, but very often there's one person that stands out as being the most inspirational person in their life. So who is that for you? Uh, it was Warren Buffett, I think, um, just naturally because of the way that he is patient, he uh, he compounds, you know, he he literally he is more about understanding and learning and getting the experience rather than just sort of, you know, firing everything away. Um, and I think because of his patience, he's been able to sort of compound um, his knowledge and his experience. And then he's obviously been able to compound his wealth as well. But yeah, I think Warren Buffett is, is probably um, who I take inspiration from. And books, you mentioned earlier, you read some, you know, quite a lot of books in the early days. What do you think the best book is that you've read? What did you get from it? Oh, there's a, there's a lot of good books. Um, I'll just tell you one that I've read recently, which has really resonated with me. Um, it's The Compounding Effect. Um, and it's really, really simple. Um, it's really simple things that we, you know, we, 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 we do it on a daily basis, but we probably just don't realise. But it's more about just doing things slowly and just starting off. Um, rather than just sort of thinking, okay, I, I really need to maybe, you know, sort of quit my job and just start in, in property full time. It's more about 
just starting doing some kind of property, even if you're doing a bit of education on the side, and then start to do it slowly. And then at least that way, whatever knowledge, experience, et cetera, you're gaining, it will start to compound as well. So I think the compounding effect in general, um, whether it's health, uh, you know, business, property, et cetera, it just works all across the board. Yeah, absolutely. And we all get different things from books, don't we? And the compound effect, I think it's by Darren Hardy. Um, is, that, is that the same one we're talking, we're talking about the same thing here? Yeah. Yeah, it's the same book, yeah. Yeah, the same book. Sorry, thought I'd lost you then for a minute. And people get yeah. different things from different books. And I think for me, you know, um, I read a lot of books and I've read The Compound Effect as well. And, you know, it is these, you just get one light bulb moment from each book and that can change your whole perspective on how you do business, which is absolutely awesome. So, Safe, it's been a great interview. I want to thank you for sharing your story. How can people contact you if they want to ask you any more questions about what we've discussed today on the podcast sure so uh, we've got the instagram which is sdgb properties uh, we've got the facebook group as well sdgb properties um, we've got our website which is www.sdgbproperties.com um, and then if anyone needs to email me you can just email me directly at info at sdgbproperties.com that's absolutely awesome and what have you got planned for the rest of the day uh, the rest of the day, I've got some deals that I'm just going to be looking at. And um, yeah, just um, firing away a couple of emails this morning as well. Awesome. Safe. Thank you so much. Um, I wish you best in the future with all of your businesses. Love to see those numbers once you've completed on that deal. Feel free to stack them up there and put them in the Facebook group. That'd be great to see it. And thank you for spending your morning with us today. Perfect, Rick. Thanks a lot for that. I appreciate it. No problem at all. So folks, that's it for today. If you need to reach me for anything, you can tag me on Facebook at the HMO Property Community Group or Rick Gannon UK on my Facebook page. Or of course, you can give me a call in the office on 01886 834 800 or my email address, which is info at newerapropertysolutions.co.uk.